you really only need to make big strategic choices, I don't know, every quarter maximum, every six months maybe, that's about how often I do it. You make a six month plan and then the trick is you just freaking stick to it. You just do it. You just do the work and you don't question it unless there's some piece of jarring counter evidence that comes to you. You just keep doing the damn things and that is how you make progress. And I think it's like that for business, for life, for almost everything. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community, undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Dory is a master of habits, how to create them, start them, teach others to do them. She shares how it's done methodically and effectively. So this conversation is more about personal leadership than environmental stuff, but environmental action needs more personal leadership, needs more leadership. That's what I'm doing this podcast for. Dory would not be satisfied with doing something part way. Over six months before this conversation, when she committed to this challenge, I was nudging her to make it less than six months. And she said, no way, I'm going to do it full six months. We met at the cafe that she talked about. So you'll hear the street noise. We're just sitting there on the street in New York City. She's incredibly open, sharing about herself. And it begins for all aspiring leaders and entrepreneurs with how successful leaders and entrepreneurs talk about entrepreneurial projects with the theater project. Anyway, let's listen to Dory. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Dory Clark. Dory, how are you? I am great, Josh. This is a beautiful sunny day in New York, and we're we're sitting outside enjoying the elements. So, so we're we're soaking in the environment in a very literal sense right now. Literally, yeah, exactly. We are, as mentioned last time, which was now six months ago, more than six months ago. So you've taken on one of the biggest, most long-standing challenges of anyone on the podcast. And just to give a little more context. Let's just name it. We are at Bluestone Lane Coffee on 50 Water Street, down by Wall Street. And if it sounds like there's a lot of street noise, that's because there is a lot of street noise. We are literally sitting on the sidewalk. Yeah, we're on the sidewalk, and there's uh, cars, what is that, 10 feet away, 20, 15 feet away. And then to our left, my left, here behind you, is the Bluestone Lane, so we might hear a little bit of music because they're playing some music kind of loud. A bus just went by. Hopefully everyone can hear us, and it's not so horrible. I'm kind of leaning forward a little bit into the microphone. And let's see. So I want to talk to you about the challenge because we're now six months in and that's one of the longest challenges. This podcast hasn't been around barely six months. And a lot of people, when they take on challenges, they stick with it a week or two. New Year's resolutions happen in January 1st or December 31st. And then what? When do they usually disappear? By like Valentine's Day. Yes. And so I want to hear about that. But also last time you were deep in book stuff. And now are you still deep in book stuff or has it, has the launch, is it continuing? How's that? Do you mind sharing? Yeah. The, I mean, there, there is always a long tail. So in some ways you never fully extricate from book launch stuff, but 
the very intense part usually lasts for about three to six months. So I am now officially out of intense book stuff. And I just bought a condo, so I'm now in intense condo Oh, my God. <laughs> I was about to say to the viewers who can't see, there's like a sparkle in her eye and a smile on her face of the release from the book stuff. But then I've lived in my place 20 years, partly because I never want to move again. That's amazing. 20 years. Good plan. Yes. Well, plan, like, I don't want to move. Is that, how's that going for you? Well, I'm, I am hoping similarly to achieve the same longevity that you have. I am getting a little bit of work done on my place before I move in. I'm getting it painted and I'm getting the floors redone. And so I want to get it nice so that when I move in, I don't have to move for 10 or 20 years because in, I've, I've officially discovered what would be the worst second career for me ever. And that would be to be an interior designer because I hate it. It's so incredibly stressful. I understand a lot of people do it recreationally, but I think I think it's a, a, just a nightmare. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm pausing because I, do I want to go into, I have a friend, had a friend who was an architect who redesigned my place and then disappeared in the middle. Oh no. And so the con- I had to switch contractors and it was like horrible. So actually one of the places on my blog, I, I wrote a page like this. De- I think there's a demand for someone in between people who want contracting done and contractors to manage a contractor and speak to you English. Yes. And who's mo- motivated not by getting paid you know, the contractor, there's always this, like, you're halfway through and now you're stuck. Yes. And suddenly they jack up the prices. Yep. And I want someone who can keep that down. And I get emails from that every now and then. Someone's like, that's a great idea. Are you doing it? I'm like, oh, someone should do it. I know. We do, we do need the right, the right person for that. I think that that would, that that would be big. The other big problem that I think needs to be solved, and I, I kick this out to the universe, I'm hoping that someone will be smart enough to solve it, is that I've been going to a lot of Broadway shows lately, uh-huh. and I am mortified and appalled every single time that in you know a hundred plus years they have not figured out how to solve the problem that immediately before the show or during intermission there are maybe a thousand people that want to use the bathroom, uh-huh. and they they just I don't exactly know what the, the situation is because it's not like you can have a thousand bathrooms, but nonetheless the idea of having these massive like 30 minute long waits is completely impractical. I think I think Uber and Tesla need to get on that shit. We need America's greatest minds figuring out how to solve the bathroom crisis at sporting events, at uh, at Broadway shows, and that person is going to be a kajillionaire. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is what when people write leadership books and entrepreneurship books, this is what they talk about. And conversations like this lead to thing lead to solutions. I mean I think a lot of people, and, and what makes it happen is, what makes it happen? What's the difference between people who just talk this way and people who actually make things happen? Any ideas? I think that the part that can make it happen, I don't have enough depth of industry expertise to be able to do anything with this other than identify the problem. Although identifying the problem is a useful starting point. But if we had either here in person or listening to this podcast, potentially, mm-hmm. someone who worked for the Schubert Theater, the Nederlander Theater, uh, Drew Jamson, which are the three big uh, theater owners in Broadway, or, you know, stadiums. If there was somebody who ran that, who owned that, they would be a good stakeholder. And then the other, sp- the other person would probably need to be, you know, for the sake of innovation, it would need to be some kind of like, you know, a systems engineer or something. Like maybe somebody, we, we can't predict who it would be, but somebody who has solved the problem in a related field. And, you know, like what... I mean, how do you strip the problem back to its barest essence, which is 
which is demand management, right? There are certain things that everybody wants at the same time and then no one wants them afterwards. Mm -hmm. No one wants the bathroom when the Broadway show is running. They want the bathroom before and during intermission. So if there is a parallel industry that has huge just spikes of demand and then and then a, you know a recession of demand maybe it's accountants with tax flowers and mother's day and valentine's day yes exactly however they solve that problem i bet that there's someone listening that could they could see the the parallel and be able to team up and do it i think having conversations like this is a big piece of it and then a big piece of success i think is a lot of people might take the step of like making a couple calls and the people who succeed are the ones who keep going and don't stop because Everyone's thought about it a little bit because you're standing in line waiting for the bathroom. Yes. <laughs> and then, but no one does. And maybe some people will make a call or two, but keeping at it, keeping at it, keeping at it. At some point you become the expert and it, there's no expert. There's no school where you go to, to find out how do we solve the bathroom situation. So if you figure it out, you are the expert and beyond everybody else. So I'm glad we had this because we're talking about entrepreneurial you and this is how entrepreneurs talk and act. The movies don't always represent it. <laughs> That's right. We're modeling it right now. This is how entrepreneurs act. One really funny coffee I had uh, a while back in San Francisco showed me a slice of how entrepreneurs in San Francisco act, uh -huh. which is that I went to visit a friend and there was a guy who was just like kind of randomly hanging out at his house and I didn't know this other guy. And you know, when I asked him, so, you know, what are, what are you up to? What are you interested in? His answer, of course, this being San Francisco, was radical life extension. Right. And he went, he went on to, to just, you know, rattle off his, like, half an hour soliloquy about, uh, about biomedical advances and about how people don't really need to die. And, uh, you know, he, of course, he's not a doctor. He's not a researcher. He's a, he is a, life ex a radical life extension hobbyist. Uh -huh. And I think that... Uh, that's that's sort of the San Francisco flavor of this. Yeah, I feel like he's going to go to Burning Man. Oh, a hundred percent. So let's talk. Let's talk your challenge, or let's talk. All right, what was the challenge? What did you do over the past six months from following from our last podcast? Yes. So the challenge that I set myself, I the reason Josh that we are at Bluestone Lane, of course, is that my challenge was related to Bluestone Lane. This is a coffee shop near where I live, which I like a lot. I come to it reasonably frequently, and there was a, a favorite lunch that I would get. Sometimes breakfast, depends how ambitious you are. Uh, and it is avocado toast, and I would get it with cherry tomatoes and feta. It was delicious. Uh -huh. And uh, something that I'd probably get, you know, a couple times a week. And one of the things that I realized would be good for me was to try to eat more vegan. I, I was not interested in being fully vegan because I, I feel like that's hard to maintain. A key for me in coming up with goals is something that I feel like is plausible to maintain over the long term because you were talking about how to avoid slippage or, or recidivism or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted something that felt manageable. So if I, if I said, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to go completely vegan, I wasn't sure that I could really stick with it. But what I realized I could do is to take certain things that I ate a lot and then make those things vegan. So I had done this previously uh, with a, a dish that I had at Chipotle, which I started having just as a vegan dish. And I decided I'm gonna do it here too. And so steadily I'm gonna just sort of chip away, chip away until I have a pretty darn vegan diet. 
And so that is what I have, I have been up to. I just, I stopped cold turkey, not once since, since we made the pledge, have I had the, uh, the avocado toast with feta here at Bluestone Lane. I just cut it out. I get the avocado and the cherry tomato. It is satisfying. Uh-huh. I like feta, but I can live without feta and I can just feel the virtue coursing through my veins. So I have been able to keep it up over these last six months. So how often have you been here? Is it, has it still been a couple times, two or three times a week? Yeah, I would, I, I would, say, I would say probably if you average it out, because I travel a lot, maybe once a week. But yes, I, I come here regularly. And when you say, I want to ask about the, the action, but you talked about, at the beginning, you said something that would be good for you, and you talked about virtue. So what I'm trying to lead people through their values, not anyone else's. So that tells me that there's something that before I ever talked to you, before this podcast, you had it in mind, you had a value that you were attaching this to. What was the value that you're acting on? Well, I think there's a couple of things, of course. So I've been a vegetarian since I was 13. And I, for me, the reason is that I really love animals. And so I wanted to try to reflect that with my day-to-day action. I never was vegan. Um, I grew up in North Carolina, and it was in a small town. It was enough of a struggle to be vegetarian. When I was a teenager, of course, it was kind of convincing my mom because she was sort of the, you know, the, the, the master of the kitchen. Thank you, dude. But even uh, just, you know, finding options, things to eat. I mean, in New York City, it's not really hard. But in a lot of places, especially if you travel, it's, it is rather hard. But I, I respect people that do it because, of course, there are better ways of getting milk or eggs or cheese or, or things like that. There are better ways and worse ways. But in general, you know, they're, they're doing things that if you look at them a little too hard, are not that nice. It's like, oh, we want milk. Let's just keep these cows pregnant all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's basically like, hey, let's, let's make you a cow slave. And <laughs> I, I really, if I interrogate my values, I don't think that that's great. And so... I would like, you know, I definitely have felt strong enough to say, okay, I'm not going to eat meat, but uh, I figure the more that I can do in the direction of just not not being involved with animals at all in terms of eating utilizing them, them. <laughs> or eating parts uh, of them, or eating, yeah. yeah, stuff from them. I think that that would be that that would be better and would feel better to me. So, would you feel differently if you if we didn't live in an industrial age and it was everything was a family farm and it was hand milked? Would you feel differently? I'm just curious about here. Yeah, I would I would certainly feel better about it in terms of like dairy products and things like that. In terms of actually eating meat and things like that. I'm I'm just I'm a very big animal person and you know, this is sort of a philosophical thing, but I actually really don't accept that my life as a human is worth more than an animal's. I think you know, there's a lot of people, probably most people, that would be like, Well, you know, yeah, I don't like pouring Clorox in the bunny's eyes just to fuck with the bunny, but you know, if we're if we're doing something with the bunny or the chimpanzee or whatever to advance medical research, if we're testing a drug that could save human lives, then it's worthwhile. I understand most people think that. I actually don't. I am a little bit of an absolutist in that because I'm just not sure that I'm more worth it than other uh, at least mammalian creatures are. There's plenty of cases where when people are forbidden or restricted from doing something, they find another way to do it. I'm not saying they can find it in every case, but in many cases, people can find other ways of testing things. I've been vegetarian since 1990 myself, so yeah. it's like... Okay, so first of all, you had something that... How do I put it? This tapped into something that was already there. Partly, I want, I'm glad that, to bring that up because I think most people that I talk to have something that they wanted to do, 
and give them the impetus to do it and not feel like it's just spitting in the wind, they'll do it. And so I hope people listening are thinking, maybe they'll be thinking of something, whether they're vegetarian or not, they might have something else that they could think of doing that they could do less of or more of or change. So it happens that eating, that generally getting animal stuff is environmentally more, affects the environment more than eating plants. So it happened to tap in. Was that an easy jump for you or was that, was that link obvious or simple? Or I mean, it's, to do something for animal rights isn't necessarily to do something environmental. How was that jump for you? Or was that connection obvious and simple? It is to me, but it might not be to everyone. I'm just... Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly from a beef perspective, you hear about, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, you know, the, the biggest contributor to greenhouse um, gases and, and global warming is just the methane from the beef industry and, you know, the dairy industry, I'm sure, is kind of hand in glove with that because cows emit a lot of methane. So yeah, they seem, they seem pretty tightly bound to me. All right, you talked about what you did, and I believe I saw some happiness. Not once did you, you went cold turkey, and then not once did you relapse. And I want to ask about the emotional side of things. How did it feel? Was it, how, how would you describe, I mean, I think I picked up from your tone of voice, but what was, how did you feel? Yeah, was experience? I, I would say it felt good. I mean, I, I think something that we talked about in our first interview was the, uh, the commitment and consistency principle that Robert Cialdini talks about. And so I, ju- I would have been just kind of embarrassed <laughs> with myself if I had suddenly been like, oh, today I really feel like, you know, putting putting feta cheese on my avocado toast. I mean, it, it's a minor thing. You know, it's not it's not like it's the, it's the hugest transgression in the world. But if you have made a commitment not to do something and then you do it, presumably it needs to be for a pretty good reason. And I just couldn't ever find a good enough reason. I mean, the reason would have been like, oh, I feel like it. And that that seemed uh, a little lame to me. So I, I figure, you know, it's it can be so trying sometimes to find things that, you know, we all have big goals and it can be a long process and a difficult process to achieve them. And so if you have something that you can, there's a small thing that you can decide, all right, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this and you can just stick to it and it's clean, that's actually a nice thing. It's kind of a kind of a win. I think a lot of people hear you and think, yeah, that's what I should do. I'll start small, I'll build. It won't be just about me. At the moment they make the pledge, the commitment, they're like, nothing will stop me. And then later they're like, I deserve it. And this nothing will stop me goes away. But you didn't have that happen. What's the difference? Well, I think I think it's about choosing your goal well, right? Because if you if you choose something that's going to make you feel deprived, then it's almost inevitably there's going to be a backlash. You know, so I, I think that if you can choose strategically either something small enough that you feel you have other pleasures to turn to or something where it might be abstemious for a while, but there's kind of outlet valves, then I, I think that that can work uh, well. And I'll give you another example. This is not an environmental pledge, but it's kind of a related principle. So my girlfriend had been expressing to me recently that she wanted to um, she wanted to get a little bit more fit, and she'd said it a couple of times, and you know didn't necessarily seem to have a a, a clear plan articulated for that. And so, I, but because I had heard her a few times talk about this, this kind of inchoate desire, I thought, all right, well, is there something we can do? And so I made a suggestion to her that I. I would do along with her in order to kind of 
you know, be accountability buddies. And so we decided that we would limit ourselves to one drink and one, and one alcoholic drink and one dessert per week. And that, that was it. And, you know, we could be flexible about what day it was. You know, if it was like, oh, we're going out with friends on Friday, then we'll do that. We could separate them out. You know, maybe it could be Tuesday we have the dessert and Friday we have the drink, but we have one of each. That's it. And you have your, your number, your checkbox. And when you're done with that week, you're done with that week. And what I like about this, and, you know, we're newly into it. We're on, like, I think week two of it. But so far, it seems to be pretty good, is that you're not saying, oh, you can never do this. But you are, uh, and you're, you're providing choice about when and where to exercise it. And there's, there's enough of an outlet so that if you really want something, you can do it. Um, but it feels very manageable. And so, so far, it's been fine for me. So I'm hearing that you, one, you made a game of it. You involve other people in it. Because my experience, when people talk to me about fitness, it's really hard to talk, depending on the person, it can be really hard to talk to people about fitness, even if they ask for help. And so you found a way of making it work. I, I presume you've been with her for a while, so you know each other pretty well. And you know what to talk about, how to, how to bring things up. Or she, she brought it up. I mean, she she brought it up just in terms of sort of saying like, oh, this would be this would be good to do, like you know that she that she wanted to get more fit. But yeah, I I suggested the format for a possibility of how to do it. By any chance, did your experience with this podcast bring to bear that working out? Not consciously, but probably subconsciously. And because I feel like you, I feel like you're drawing on past experiences of having done this before, of other times. Is, is this something you didn't just start it here? I think. Um, or let me, let me, I'm going to tell you a story because you made me think of something. A lot of, I talk a lot on this podcast about how a lot of what began it was when I decided to try to avoid packaged food. And now you're reminding me that for years before that, I, I remember my cupboard always, always had chips or pretzels. And in particular, Snyder's of Hanover, the broken bits with the flavors on top. And it was like, it was, you couldn't eat them with, if you eat them with your fingers, your fingers would be completely crusted with the, the salty flavor stuff. And I always had it there. And I made a rule for myself. If I bought a big container, a big bag of chips or a big bag of pretzels, I had to take at least three days to do it. And I talked just like you that was like, what's a day? Like, if I, like, so I'd usually eat half of the bag on one day. The next day I'd have like half of what was left or maybe like three quarters of what was left. And the last day I'd have like, sometimes I'd have like one chip the last day. <laughs> and we're, you're laughing and I'm laughing because you play these little games with yourself. And so I could technically eat like almost midnight one day, then the next day is 24 hours, and then just after midnight the next day, and that's three days, but it's really 24 hours plus like five minutes. <laughs> or I could alternatively I'd play these little games, but it was fun. And people would say, Josh, you're really, really nerdy about this. And I was like, yeah, I am, but it's fun. And I think there's many ways to be fun about it. And I hear the same kind of, no offense, nerdiness and geekiness in you and how you're doing it. You work out these little things that sound weird, but they're kind of fun and it works. You reminded me of that story. Does that ring true to you? Like, the, yeah, you're doing? I think that's great. Yeah, just sort of set, you know setting out a framework and pacing for yourself. I mean, another related thing, which you know, I know I got years ago from whatever books I was reading about, you know, motivation and willpower and things like that. Probably a Dan Ariely thing or whatever was about the best way, possibly the only way. But although I like yours, of eating half a bag of chips. Like if you say, "Oh, I'm going to eat half a bag of chips." Well, no one ever does it. But the way to guarantee you eat half a bag of chips is to take the moment where you have the most willpower, which is before you've started eating, 
You take half the bag and you throw it in the trash. You ju- you literally just shake it out and put it in the trash so that you would not ever touch it. And then you have half a bag left and then you can eat that. <laughs> so now you're buying extra chips. Yeah. So that works. <laughs> yes. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Well, another big challenge for a lot of people is relationships. I don't know if you come here on your own to Bluestone or if you come with other people, but sometimes when you're with other people, that makes it a challenge. Actually, you pick something where I think you're fairly in control of this environment, and when you're not here, it's not an issue. Was it an issue for you? It, it was not. I primarily come here by myself to you know, grab lunch, or I might do a little bit of, of working with my laptop. Um, I actually did run into some, just before you came, I ran into somebody that I knew, uh, but mostly I'm coming here by myself. But yeah, when it comes to, to, you know, sort of peer pressure or whatever, what I have found to be more effective is just being, being very clear on, I do not X. If you say to yourself, well, I sometimes X and sometimes don't, then it's, it's this constant sort of vacillation about, well, is this one of the times that I do X or is it not? And then you're kind of back and forth and like, oh, oh, well, it'd be nice. It'd be fun. Well, okay, well, maybe this time I'll do X. But you got to you gotta draw the boundaries so that you don't have to expend the cognitive energy on it. Yeah, I do the not mental do freedom. X. Yeah, to me, the mental freedom is, that makes it so much easier. The, the actual, for fitness, the calories burned is tiny effort. It's a lot of, maybe a lot of calories, but compared to the mental effort of, am I going to do this or not? Much easier to say, for me, I, maybe for others it's different. Just like, yes or no. Okay, how am I going to do this? I'm going to do this. And then, yeah, you got to do it. But you don't have to wonder, am I going to do it or not? Because I do my exercises every day and stuff like that. Yeah, nice. So has this, I mean, you had a bigger goal of, of, I feel like there's a long-term goal of full vegan for the rest of your life. I'm not sure. We'll see how plausible that is. I I feel like society is getting better and better. Like I've become a real fan. Like I love the Beyond Burger. I love Impossible Burgers. You know, they're creating really super good meat substitutes. And I just, I think that in order for me as somebody who travels a lot and, you know, is just on the road a lot, to be able to really be quote unquote successfully vegan, I think that more of the rest of the country needs to offer viable vegan alternatives besides like an iceberg lettuce salad. But I think that, you know, with with the right structure in place, which means I either have a private chef like Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi, uh-huh. or I'm spending all my time in urban areas, or the rest of America gets a little more up with it, then yes, I think that would be a good goal. At present, I don't think it's necessarily feasible for my lifestyle, but I think if one of those three conditions can be met, then yes. First, I have to mention Pat Brown. I just interviewed him. He's the inventor of the Impossible Burger. Nice. And before I had him on, I thought the Impossible Burger, like I don't want meat. And I thought... And there's plenty of veggie burgers out there. And I had one at Umami Burger because they, they like sent me there. They were like, go check it out at Umami Burger. Yeah. Okay, so I, tried, so I had that. And, uh, and I thought, okay, this is good, but I'm not trying to get meat. And here's his a very interesting take. 
his goal is not to make necessarily the best tasting veggie burger for people who aren't, who don't eat meat. He wants to make meat without going through an animal. Yeah. It's a very, to be a mind blowing concept. He wants to make meat. Like what does it, what does a cow do? It takes plants and water and stuff and turns it into meat. But that's just chemical, physical, biological reactions. So I'm, I think that's awesome. I, you know, it's not my strategy because I'm not his market. I don't want a beef thing, beef-like thing. But as you say, that's a big challenge. We're not going to change a lot of people. They, they don't care if it tastes better. They want beef. Yeah, yeah. So he's making that. It's really interesting. If you want to get in touch, I'll put you in touch. Oh, that's, that's great, yeah. So are you thinking about, is this expanding to other areas past Bluestone? So I'm thinking about possibilities. I'm a big fan, you could probably pick up on this, about, you know, sort of the measured goals. I try to not overbook myself with goals, so to speak. And so for me, what that means is just really pacing myself. I am a very big believer in the, uh, in the adage that people typically get a lot less done than they imagine in a, in a day, but they get a lot more done in a year. And it's hard for people to sort of feel like things are adding up, but then you look back on your previous year and it's like, oh my God, that was, that was a lot of things altogether. And so if you're just, if you're very steady and very, very measured in what you do, you can actually really take big transformative actions. You can write the book, you can, you know, whatever, buy the condo or, or whatever it is. And so I have a few things that are kind of my personal improvement goals that are, that are coming up which I'm trying not to take on too much more than that because I want to do them properly. I would say that for the next month or so, and it's been the case for the past month, uh, is stuff related to my condo, getting it fixed up, moving in, et cetera, et cetera, just kind of getting my place set, which is a big deal. After that, some other things that I'm interested in doing more of, which one in particular, I did a workshop back in March by a woman named Aisha Burcell. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, she was like, design the life you love. And one of the, the things, you know, it's just sort of a good few hours to sort of think about things you want to do. And one of the things that came to me from it was that I really missed playing squash, which I, which I used to play. And it's not super convenient for me to play squash, but I, I had this realization that I would just, even if it's not convenient, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to make the time for squash. And so I've reached out to a guy about setting up lessons. And so once I finish moving into my apartment and get that all set, later this summer, I'm going to start taking weekly squash lessons. And that is going to be uh, part, of, part of what I'm doing. So I'm just, I'm sort of adding things in incrementally about turning myself into the dory that I want to be. This echoes a lot of, uh, I also just interviewed David Allen, who's really big on small, consistent things that you do and they really add up, and they add up more than anything. And I think a lot of people out there are, they sound like someone who's like, like I always, when they, I always makes me think of the person who's the alcoholic, and like gets all their alcohol and pours it all out, and like never again, and then they're back on. On or off the wagon, I don't know which is which. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I keep talking to people who are successful, effective leaders, people who have changed their lives, and they're all, it, it seems like it's pretty consistent, like small little things that they keep up with, that they can do and they think of what can I do what won't I be able to do I think also that at some point the thing that you're trying to do becomes background like it becomes like some people out there are trying to be vegetarian 
you are not trying to be vegetarian. You're just vegetarian. Right. Am I right? Yeah. But I don't know if at some point it was, maybe for you it wasn't hard at the beginning because you just couldn't fathom eating meat, I, I would guess. No, no. I mean, I, I loved eating meat. I thought meat was super delicious. But I, I think it was, the part that was not hard for me was that I was 13. And so I was just filled with this sort of like, you know, teenage rage and rebellion. And so I'm just like, I'm doing this. And that, you know, teenage rage and rebellion can get you through almost anything. <laughs> and it's stuck. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's bringing motivations from other places sometimes will get you going in one. Take something really motivates you in one area. If you can apply that to a different area, it can work. So, by the way, thank you for sharing because I think, you know, there's all these best-selling authors and people who are out there doing the TED Talks and things like that. And they always have these prepared stories and edited stuff. And you're sharing your life. Not, not accessible to everyone always. So thank you. And it's like off the top, this is unprepared. <laughs> thank you, Josh. You've had six months of preparation, I guess. But six months of not falling off or on. So I want to wrap up. I usually wrap up with two questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? And the other is, uh, any message direct to the listeners that you want to pass on? Uh, pick which one first or if you want to, if one or the other. Yeah, fantastic. Well, in terms of, of things to, to bring up, and I just want to say, I think it's so cool you're, you're doing this. You're, you're really an exemplar of the message. So, so keep, keep rocking it, my man. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think to your point about the small, you know, kind of steady things, I do a lot of executive coaching and I, I hear this all the time from my clients. You know, they'll, you know, they'll sort of hop on the call and be like, okay, what next? You know, what's the new, what's the new assignment this week? What's the new thing? What's the new challenge we're going to surmount? And what I often find myself in the position of having to do is be like, guys, you know, like no new challenge. We just keep doing the challenge you're working on. <laughs> and it seems so boring sometimes because you know there's this human tendency where it's like you want the sexy thing it's like oh let's what are we trying for let's try for this but i would say that you really only need to make big strategic choices i don't know every quarter maximum every six months maybe that's about how often i do it you make a six-month plan and then the trick is you just freaking stick to it you just do it you just do the work and you don't question it Unless there's some piece of jarring counter evidence that comes to you, you just keep doing the damn things. And that is how you make progress. And I think it's like that for business, for life, for almost everything. I'm connecting what you're saying now to what you said on a small, on a weak scale, you don't get a whole lot done. But on a year, I think you have the expectation, not only are you sticking with something, but at a, at a year, you'll look back and say, wow, that was a lot. Yeah. If you stick with it. That's right. Did I combine those effectively? Yes, very much so. All right. So I'm going to wrap up with that. Uh, I hope people listening learn from Dory's practice. And anytime you have, if there's something environmental or leadership that you want to bring to the audience, always welcome back. And before we wrap up, you have a book that's out. People can reach you. You coach. How can people find you? Yeah, thank you, Josh. Uh, the new book is Entrepreneurial You. And if folks want to dive into the OOV, I have more than 500 free articles available on my website. It's doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. Some guests, you can tell they're always conscious of the microphone. Dory felt like she just shared. Most of us are so genuine with friends and family. I think we all wish we kept that genuineness and authenticity in public. She has clearly figured out how to lead oneself as well as lead others. But the personal leadership really comes out to me in this conversation. I can see why people who read her books 
love her books because she tells people how to be like her, that genuine, that authentic. So I really appreciate Dory for sharing her life. She's a best-selling author. She's a high-demand coach. She's a professor. She's a public speaker. But when you meet her in person, she's just a regular down-to-earth person. I think that takes skill and practice that we can all learn from. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.